Behind the metal door, they had the fully intact, frozen head of a 10,000-year-old woolly mammoth. The tusks, the hair, the flesh, the whole head was intact and frozen, and has been there for thousands of years. And it was amazing. And when no one was looking, I broke a little piece off, and I had to try it, because I wanted to... <laughs> I wanted to taste it. Episode 373. Today we talk about Nepal, Siberia climbing in North Korea, and we even discuss what it's like to taste woolly mammoth. All this and more with George Karunas. This episode is sponsored in part by Kennedy Pet Food. You know your dog is the best part of your adventure, and a great way to keep him happy and healthy is by feeding him the best pet food. That's why you need to check out Kennedy Pet Food. Kennedy is an independent and family-owned pet food company who uses the same care and the same quality ingredients they want for their own pets when making their pet foods. Check out Kennedy.com podcast. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. Hey friends, Kurt here. I have George Karunas on the line today, and I'm excited to catch up with him again and find out what he's been up to. As you may recall from previous episodes... George is a just worldwide renowned explorer who's made a career out of uh, kind of being an adventurer for hire. He's the chairman of the Explorers Club. He is the explorer in residence for the Royal Canadian Geographic Society. He's traveled to over 65 countries, and he likes to go to our planet's most crazy places where Mother Nature is spitting out her worst and to experience that and record it in a way that he can share it with the world. And so, George, welcome to the program. Oh, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. You bet. I mean, since we last had you on the show, you've been doing a lot of things, and uh, we're going to touch on what we can in the time that we have. There's so much, but just in in way of a, a bullet point summary, we're going to talk about a trip to North Korea. We're going to talk about a trip to Nepal. And we also have some more volcano action we need to talk about. So where would you like to dive in? Oh, wow. Uh, how about with the most recent? I literally just got back from Nepal a, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it was my first time visiting there. My first time in the Himalayas, actually, of all my travels. I've never been there before. And uh, on this particular occasion, we were filming a TV show for the Weather Network here in Canada. Sort of all about people recovering from the earthquake and the Himalayas and things like that. So I, I don't know. Have you ever uh, been to the Himalaya region? I have not. I have several friends who have, but I have not made that trip yet. Right. So if you're, if you, if you know the, the, the Rocky mountains, of course, uh, they're, they're like little hills when you go to the, <laughs> compared to the Himalayas. Oh yeah. And if you're doing a trek to Mount Everest base camp, you fly to the little, the world's most dangerous airport in Lukla, which is nestled in the mountains there, very precariously nestled in the mountains. And then you take about 10 days to acclimatize and hike up to Mount Everest base camp. And then if you want to climb Everest, you go from there. But thousands of people go to Everest base camp every year. But because we were filming a TV show, and we were basically talking about Earth's extremes and things that can kill you. Well, what we wanted to do was basically <laughs> go there without acclimatizing at all. So we took a helicopter <laughs> oh, from Kathmandu. No. 
<laughs> from Kathmandu to Lukla, and then from Lukla right up to Mount Everest base camp. And we had to stop about halfway just to unload a few people, unload all the extra fuel, because there's so little air for the helicopter blades to push against that you have to go as light as possible. And basically, a helicopter is nothing more than 10,000 moving parts all trying to get as far away from each other as they can. <laughs> and and so we, we then had minimal load, three people, up to base camp. And we weren't even sure if we were going to be able to land, but we did. The pilot left the engine running, and I get out. And immediately, I can start to feel my fingertips go numb from the hypoxia. It's amazing how you you take you take air for granted right. <laughs> when you're at sea level or you know not up in the mountains, but when it's quickly taken away from you, oh boy, does it ever affect your body? Well, and it could be dangerous to to do that so quickly. So Everest Base Camp, help me out here. It's actually seventeen thousand six hundred. So when you go up to uh, those kind of altitudes that quickly, it can mess you up. Um, a lot of a lot of your viewers might or, or listeners, I suppose, would be uh, familiar with a mountain like Pikes Peak in Colorado. That's a popular one that people go up, and it's about fourteen thousand feet. So this is three and a half thousand feet higher than that. My partner, <laughs> we were supposed to do some pieces talking to camera about this, and he crouched down and he couldn't get back up. Wow! <laughs> Our cameraman's yelling at him, "Get up, get up!" And he's like, "Nope, I can't." So I just had to crouch down beside him and then finish our pieces to camera. Um, the problem, of course, is with that lack of oxygen, you will pass out very quickly. Like if you lose cabin pressure in an airplane, the oxygen masks come down and you can breathe that. But if you're up at these high altitudes and you don't have that oxygen, then you're just going to pass out and eventually, uh, well, it just gets worse from there. Let's put it that way. And so our, we're there for literally five minutes. That's it. That's all we were allowed because your body just cannot handle that lack of oxygen. So the chopper pilot's yelling at us to get back in. He's got an oxygen supply, but we don't. So he's uh, rather uh, adamant that we get back in the chopper. Let's put it that way. Wow. So what was the purpose of this? And I'm going to call it a stunt because <laughs> that's well, really what it is. This was a stunt. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we were, we were filming for a TV show, right? So we had to get these beauty shots of Mount Everest Base Camp. And, of course, we wanted to document the effects of rapid altitude change without acclimatization to sort of show people what happens to your body if you don't do it the right way, right? So if you, if you go up too fast, um, these are the effects that you will feel. Now, we did it in a manner where the danger was minimal. Um, certainly not zero. If, if the weather came in, which it kind of did, or if the helicopter had a mechanical failure or anything like that, then we would have been in pretty big trouble. So it's the kind of thing where you really hope the helicopter is well-maintained. Oh, well, I have never had that big of an altitude change all at once, obviously. Very few people on the planet could claim that. Um, maybe a few pilots who lost cabin pressure. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly what we're talking about here. Exactly. It's, it's that rapid loss of cabin pressure. But instead of in, in a matter of seconds, if a, if a, a window goes, like in that, that recent uh, airplane incident where the window went on that, uh, that um, airliner, it, uh, it happened over the span of maybe 
30 minutes as we flew the helicopter up to those altitudes, mm. right? So it's still pretty rapid and certainly not enough for your, your body to uh, acclimatize to. I'm used to climbing erupting volcanoes and things like that. And when you do that, then you take your time and you climb up. And I've never been this high before, but at least this mountain wasn't exploding and trying to kill me that way. Well, based on your very brief visit to base camp, what was your take on it? Um, it's beautiful. The glacier, the Kumbu Glacier is gorgeous. It's the, I believe it's the highest glacier in the world. And that's the one where all the climbers have to stretch the ladders across to all the crevasses. It's it's very, uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, these, the seracs, which are these giant pieces of ice, can be the size of houses. And it was almost exactly three years ago when the earthquake happened in Nepal. And part of the glaciers there just collapsed and caused that huge avalanche that uh, was the deadliest day on Mount Everest ever. And we were standing on the spot where that avalanche came crashing through. So to see all those tents, hundreds of people sort of getting ready to do their climb up Mount Everest in the exact same spot where so many people were killed from the avalanche not too long ago is really sobering because things can happen in a heartbeat up there. Mm, Wow. Well, it's fascinating. Any other key takeaways from Nepal? (laughs) <laughs> oh, one cool thing we got to do is uh, in our helicopter, we had an extra seat and we gave a lift to uh, Kancha Sherpa, who was the f- last surviving member of Sir Edmund Hillary's 1953 uh, climb to be the first people to reach the summit. So there's only one person alive left from that uh, expedition. And I got to meet him, got to interview him. Super nice guy. And he needed a lift. So <laughs> instead of calling an Uber, well... There's no Ubers in that part of the world. You can't <laughs> roads even. So we uh, we gave him a lift in our helicopter because we had some space from between um, Kathmandu and up to uh, Lukla. So that was awesome meeting him. This this guy's a legend in the climbing community. What a treat! Yeah, yeah. He's in his mid to late 80s now. Yeah, what a treat. Well, I don't know how to segue into North Korea from Nepal, you know, <laughs> but somehow well, we've got to make that gone. happen. Well. Well, I was mountain climbing, so people people ask me what, I, what you do for um, for for vacation, right? Because I spend all my life traveling to all kinds of crazy places, from Antarctica to Iceland and and Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Tonga, South Pacific, whatever. And usually, it's for work of some kind. And then people want to know what I do to relax. And so, last May, just about a year ago now, exactly. I uh, went to North Korea because that's how I wanted to spend my vacation time. (laughs) But not just go there. I wanted to go there and experience parts of the country that basically nobody ever gets to see. Mm. So I made some arrangements with some some people in England and who... uh, were able to help me out tremendously with uh, permission to enter the country and permission to go to some of the mountains in the central part of the of the country. So we were mountain trekking and climbing, and uh, we even were camping. And that's pretty much unheard of if you go to North Korea. So it, it was a surreal place. Well, with all the political dynamics that are at play right now, uh, a lot of people would wonder why go to the trouble to go to North Korea um, how, how do you answer that? Well, I wanted to visit it before World War III broke out and the place <laughs> gets into a slab of radioactive glass. So I kind of, <laughs> with, with several less than stable world leaders, um, 
you know, it was an absolute concern. And this was a year ago. But I mean, things are get are, are cooling off now in the in the uh, in the past couple of weeks, which is great. Um, tensions are certainly diminishing. But a year ago, things were really certainly sketchy. And as a matter of fact, while I was there, I flipped on the TV one morning and saw that they had just done a ballistic missile launch test mm. the previous day, not far from where I was. And now everything that's running through my mind is like, oh, no, am I going to get nuked by – is Trump going to send the nukes in? <laughs> so that was an absolute concern for me. I don't think ever in all of my travels have I ever been afraid of being hit by a friendly fire from a nuclear weapon. Right. <laughs> so that was absolutely a concern. Well, you know what? Since the 50s, there have not been many Westerners who get the opportunity to go actually go to North Korea. And I, we probably have a vacuum of, of personal knowledge on what North Korea is like. Can you help to fill in that vacuum a little bit? Describe Absolutely. the, the uh, country and the landscape and your experiences. Absolutely. The country itself is quite beautiful. The mountains are gorgeous, and no one ever gets to see them. They kind of remind me of some of the Dolomite Mountains in uh, in Italy, places like that. Um, and the people there are basically the same as people anywhere else. They are interested in providing for their family. They want to be happy. They want to be healthy. They were extremely friendly the general public were very, very friendly to us. And they're interested in reunification with South Korea. Everything that we saw, every map that they showed us of Korea had North and South unified as one. They were they didn't show any border between the two. Of course, we went right to the border and it was obviously heavily militarized, even though it's technically called the demilitarized zone. But um, by far, the vast... Uh, amount of animosity was was directed mainly towards the U.S., not towards South Korea, because, of course, of the war back in the 50s and such. And the strangest thing that I saw the whole time was an encounter that we had with a group of children. We had climbed to the top of this mountain where there's a nearby ski hill, and a group of children had taken the, the gondola up. And we round this corner. There's 20 or 30 kids with a whole bunch of adults taking their picture. The kids are all dressed up. There's a woman playing the accordion. Kids are singing and dancing. We're all sweaty from climbing this mountain. They had taken the gondola up. It's pretty funny. And they're having a great time. They invite us over. We take pictures with the kids. It's all, it's wonderful. Then they take out these plywood cutouts that are painted to look like grotesque caricatures of US Army soldiers. And they hand the kids these sticks. And the kids would then go running up to these soldiers, these US soldiers, and start whacking the the, the these cutouts, basically attacking the the army soldiers. Hmm. And so the indoctrination happens at a very early age. You know the propaganda campaigns on the planet, I, I doubt there's a place on earth where, you know, there's more propaganda going on. On probably on both sides of the border there. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, all I could do was say, I, I'm from Canada. <laughs> I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not an American. Because, of course, looking at me, they would have no, no idea whether I was American, Canadian, British. Who knows, right? Right. So uh, when I travel, I, I frequently tend to go out of my way to let people know that I'm Canadian. Well, I have to dive into kind of a 
a deeper question about this from such experiences as that. Did you gain any insights for solutions? How can we make the world a better place in, in such areas? Well, part of the problem is that we love to be tribal. We love to we love to propagate the us versus them mentality. And that is what you need for any kind of war or conflict, dehumanizing other people by calling them names, by treating them as something less than what you are. That's how we get into trouble, whether it's a, a, a skirmish between villages in Africa or whether it's global thermonuclear war. It's all about how we perceive each other. And once we all really sort of understand, we're all the same species. Yes, we're all different, of course, but we're all the same species. We're all on this one rock hurtling through space at, at a ridiculous speed. We could all be wiped out by an asteroid or a comet tomorrow, and uh, we have a lot more in common than we have differences. And once we really embrace all that, then the world will be a better place. Well, how do you get the leadership to embrace all of that, as you said? And that's I think that's the million-dollar question right there. Exactly. You're asking the question of the ages, right? That, that, that's, that's probably the, one of the most important questions that humanity has, has ever been faced with. And I, I don't know, I'm not a politician, nor do I have any interest in getting into politics. But as someone who has traveled to places like Eastern Congo and North Korea, Turkmenistan, and the border zones between Ethiopia and, and Somalia, places like that, it's uh, it's it's really horrible what people are capable of doing to each other, and the value of human life uh, is a lot lower in parts of the world than what we are frequently used to. So, I I try to take none of it for granted. I'm extremely fortunate that I was born in North America. I understand that through no through no actions of my own. I was born in a in a very good place, and I and I try to learn as much as I can from all these different cultures that I that I see. So two things I like to do is I like to share the culture of the places I visit. And of course, I like to get people interested in the natural world. So that's why I go to these places that have these extremes of nature. So it's a nice combination for me. I get to meet amazing people and see the most amazing, incredible uh, natural phenomena as well. So it's a double bonus. about your own personal safety did you have any concerns that you might end up behind bars somewhere and forgotten in north korea i mean that does happen to people it has happened exactly the the trick with a place like that is they do allow visitors in you have very specific rules that you should follow we were um, accompanied the entire time by several uh, government minders so we had uh you know we, we had a lot of uh guardianship let's put it that way um so there were several times when i was told that i had to delete photos off my camera because i took a picture of something that was quote unquote sensitive mm. it might have been a fence <laughs> sorry that fence is military whatever okay delete fine as long as you play their game then everything was totally cool um of course because it's north korea they can change the rules at any time and just to give you a quick little example it was our very last day. We had checked out of the hotel and we're on our way to the airport. 
and our minder comes out and was questioning one of the groups like who had room whatever 206 and the guy whose room it was he put up his hand and he took him and he brought him back into the hotel and there was a big problem and there was we had to wait and wait and he seemed very agitated and upset and it turns out the problem was the hotel key card the lamination was starting to come off on one of the corners and this for whatever reason was a big deal so you never know what is going to become a problem or not like things that you think might be a problem are fine but things that you would never even think twice about suddenly becomes a big issue Mm. Mm. when you were planning the trip was the purpose of the trip to kind of encounter this this cultural phenomenon of North Korea right now? Or was it more about seeing the landscape and interacting with that part of the globe? Um, it was more about the landscape, but at the same time, um, uh, because I knew that I was going to be shepherded and accompanied and guided the entire time, I knew that everywhere that I went was going to be exactly where they wanted to show me. Right. So that's the big problem with going to a place like that is, is yes, you do get to meet some of the locals, but you, and we were able to wander the streets in Pyongyang in some really amazing neighborhoods. And it was fascinating. Um, But our minders were never more than 10 feet away. Right. And we, we rode the subway and we were able to visit a whole bunch of really interesting places. Um, So, Culturally, it was fascinating and significant, but at the same time, it's hard for me to know if I was able to see as much of the real North Korea as as I thought I was, because the wool is never far from being pulled over your eyes or pulled off of your eyes, I suppose. Well, certainly they were directing your steps to the areas they felt were appropriate for you to view, right? But based on that experience, limited experience... Um, how would you describe this, the status of North Korea as far as infrastructure and, and uh, things like that? Well, not great, <laughs> to put it mildly. The city of Pyongyang, where most of the people live, is fascinating. There's, there's some incredible architecture there, including a hundred-story pyramid building. That's a hotel. It's, it dominates the landscape. But it's never even been opened. They started building it in the 1980s, and it's never been finished. It's just sitting there like a like a statue. Wow! This, this empty building. Um, so lots of money gets thrown into weird things. But yet, when you go in the countryside, the roads are terrible, and you see you see a fair amount of poverty. And of course, you're going to see things like that. Um, at night, it was really dark. There is not a lot of electricity, especially when you go into some of the smaller towns. At night, you'd see a few lights, and that's about it. There's, there was no central electricity to a lot of these places. But yet, you go down the road, and there's some government project where they've built some sports arena or or a, uh, a ski lodge or like a, a big swimming pool or something, these, these beautiful monuments and statues and all this kind of stuff. But yet, there's barely any electricity. So it makes you wonder about the priorities and how much the government is trying to not just convince the outsiders, but the people in the country as well, trying to sort of convince them that things are better than they are. Mm. The juxtaposition of extremes. Absolutely. 
Mm. Dogs make the best partners for outdoor adventures. Good food keeps your dog happy and healthy for those big days. So feed your pets Canada. Canada is an independent and family-owned pet food company who uses the same care and the same quality ingredients they want for their own pets when making their pet foods. In keeping with their commitment to pets and their people, Canada has taken the first steps at Canada Farms to getting involved in growing the ingredients that they use. Go to Canada.com slash podcast to try Canada for free by requesting a free sample and you'll get other special offers too. That's C-A-N-I-D-A-E dot com slash podcast. Again, that's Canada.com slash podcast. Check out bikeparts.com for all your cycling gear. They have a wide selection of over 60,000 bike parts and accessories. You can find everything you need, including tires, chains, tools, frame bags, cycling apparel, and even complete bicycles. They've got established brands like Shimano, SRAM, and Campagnolo, as well as the latest and greatest products from brands like Wolftooth, Physic, Zip, and Raceface. Need suggestions or have a question about what fits your bike? Their knowledgeable staff will answer any questions and get you rolling as quickly as possible. If you're in the great state of Colorado, stop by their full-service bike shop, Peak Cycles, in downtown Golden. Check out bikeparts.com. It's not really surprising based on what we can gather, you know. I don't know how many people that are listening have seen the satellite imagery of uh, the, the Earth from space at night in that part of the world because you see South Korea lit up just like a, a Western country and then North Korea, at least a few years ago, was dark. Yeah, it still is. Absolutely. Yeah, do yourself a favor and go to Google Image Search and just do like uh, North Korea nighttime satellite image and you'll see you can see the border between north and south korea it's bright to the south and dark to the north um certainly striking one of the weird things that happened to me while, <laughs> while i was there was uh while climbing one of these mountains mount kumgang which is a pr- pretty decent mountain i had a bit of a medical issue which is something i did not want to have happen while i was in north korea uh I've had problems in the past with a hernia and it started to act up and I started getting this hernia bulge in my sort of upper groin area while I'm on the side of this mountain. And I've experienced this before. So it's like, oh, it's, it's, you can't fix it. You have to get surgery. And it's like, oh, I hope this doesn't get so bad that I have to evacuate or anything like that. And there were moments while I'm climbing the mountain that I had to reach down into my pants and it's going to sound kind of gross, but I had to push my intestines back in through my abdominal wall every Ouch. few minutes to sort of <laughs> keep the hernia under control while I was uh, climbing. That does not sound pleasant at all. So how did that turn out? <laughs> it actually ended up turning out okay. It wasn't too bad. Luckily, there wasn't a tremendous amount of pain. It wasn't, it wasn't that bad, just more of an inconvenience. But you don't want something like that to get strangulated or anything like that. So it, that was relatively early in the trip. So I spent the rest of the trip with my hand down my pants half the time, stuffing my insides back, in, back into me. <laughs> Everything's fine now. And of course, the concern of, well, am I going to have to have surgery here? Do they know what to do with this? Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't have had surgery there. And, and the thing is, no matter who you talk to, no matter who you deal with, your travel insurance, as soon as you step across the border into North Korea, is void. Mm. You, you cannot get travel insurance for North Korea. 
So it, it was, it's a matter of, boy, this had better not become a problem because I would have to catch the next plane to Beijing in order to deal with, uh, with any of this. And you're, you're a long way from the airport at that point. Right. So how long were you in North Korea? About 10 days in total. And uh, that was plenty. Been there, done that, checked it off the list. And uh, now, you know, on to, on to other expeditions. But that was uh, an interesting way to spend my vacation last year. <laughs> Just a, a place to go to unwind, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's great. I, I love the food. They, they, they treated us very well. And of course, the thing is, they feed us tremendous amounts of really good food. But at the same time, we know that there's lots of people going without in the countryside. So again, right. it's, that, it's that land of extremes in both directions. Hmm. And what did you find about the, the mountains there that would perhaps be unique to North Korea? Something that people would say, wow, that's interesting. They, uh, one thing that they love to do there is they love to carve inscriptions on their mountains. So everywhere you go, if there's a large rock face, there's bound to be some inscription carved in the side that was done very precariously by some dude hanging off a rope, certainly, because there's no easy way to get to some of these places, um, talking about the great leaders, Kim Il-sung from back in the 50s and 60s. And uh, on this, uh, you know, at this spot back in 1960, 59 Kim Il-sung came here with this person and this person. I don't know. I, I'm, I was just going off of the translations that I was told. Uh, but they're everywhere. It's weird. They're pretty, but, you know, I kind of prefer my natural beauty to be all natural. Right. But uh, they are quite quite gorgeous. Mm. Surprisingly, that's what I would say. It's uh, surprisingly beautiful. Well, I'm glad you're back with us and not behind bars somewhere, hidden away from the world. <laughs> It, it's glad to hear that it was a successful trip. Did you manage to accomplish all the goals you had set for it? I did, absolutely. We we climbed all the peaks that we wanted to. I had the cultural experience I wanted to. We had a bit of a nuclear scare, which I didn't really plan on it, uh, but that was an interesting part. And, of course, stuffing my own intestines back into my body, that was an added bonus. <laughs> that went okay. Um, yeah, so it was, uh, in the grand scheme of things, it was good. <laughs> and I didn't get thrown in prison. <laughs> we actually had our we had our own code words amongst ourselves because we didn't want to talk about like the prison camps and we didn't want to really talk about Kim Jong Un around our minders that much. So we made up these code names like Kim Jong Un. We called them the pineapple, and the, the the labor camps we called them the cheese factory. So we had our own vernacular, our own sort of code words when we were talking amongst ourselves, so as to not uh, gather as much attention from our our government minders. Wow, that, that probably was a very good practice. That was probably wise. Yeah, probably. Well, let's uh, move on to some of the other things that you have done recently. And I'm going to make a, a little list here for everyone again. Ice climbing on icebergs. I, that caught my eye. That sounds, or my ear. Uh, and also the volcano experiences that you've had. Why don't we just go to those two? Yeah, I'm a total volcano file. I've got lava flowing through my veins. And I've probably been to at least 25 different active erupting volcanoes around the world. And 
just in the past couple of years, I've had some really interesting experiences. There was one uh, volcano in, in the Congo called Niragongo. And it's right on the border with Rwanda and Congo. So it's in a really great neighborhood. <laughs> and it dominates the landscape. The city of Goma is uh, got about 800,000 people. And uh, it's not... It's not a very safe city. Um, there's all kinds of, there's crime, there's been civil war, there's been all kinds of issues there. And twice the volcano has erupted and poured a river of lava through the center of this city. Once wow. back in the 70s and then again in 2002. And so this city is one of the most <laughs> beleaguered in the world. It, like, it has everything going wrong for it. And it sits right between this Niragongo volcano and a giant lake, Lake Kivu. And the problem with Lake Kivu is that it has tremendous amounts of dissolved carbon dioxide deep at the bottom of this lake. And it's very similar to a, to a lake in Cameroon that in 1986, the, uh, the lake exploded and all of that carbon dioxide came out kind of like shaking a Coke can. And it killed like 1,500 people along the, the shoreline. Well, here, there's about 2 million people that live along the shore with 800,000 of them in the main city. So if this lake were to explode and erupt, it would be absolutely devastating. So, of course, I had to go to this place <laughs> and see all, all of this for myself because it's not often you hear about lakes that uh, can literally explode. And, uh, and so we climbed this volcano and I actually rappelled half a kilometer, something like it was at least 1,200 feet, probably more like fourteen or 1,500 feet down to the very bottom of this gigantic crater and at the bottom is the world's largest boiling lake of lava and it just churns away 24 hours a day seven days a week and it is absolutely spectacular this thing is deeper than a skyscraper and the lava lake is about as wide as a football field and it's just gurgling with liquid rock and there's this noxious gas this sulfur dioxide gas that comes out of it all the time and it is just this hellish hellish place and uh it was absolutely beautiful but because the neighborhood is so bad we actually had to have armed guards with ak-47 machine guns uh accompany us as we climbed up the side of the volcano because the place is home to the uh, m23 rebel group and these guys are known for ambushing the park rangers on a frequent basis. And they love shooting at the United Nations helicopters as they fly around. Mm, wow. Well, what about protective equipment? I mean, if you're repelling that close to this caldera of boiling lava that's giving off sulfur dioxide gas, which, of course, could just totally de eat your lungs, right? How do you manage to stay safe? Yeah, oh, exactly. What, what happens is when you breathe in that gas... It turns the uh, moisture in your lungs to sulfur, um, uh, sulfuric acid. So your your tears, your the mucus in your lungs all turns acidic. So of course it burns and stings, and you cough, and it destroys your equipment, and all the rain turns into acid rain. So all our tents get destroyed. The ropes. By the end of the expedition, we usually have to throw out the ropes. Um, gas mask is absolutely essential. When you're rappelling down, you don't end up at the bottom near the lava. You have to walk quite a ways over to where the lava is. So you don't have to worry about the heat so much until you're at the very, very edge. 
but uh, still that gas is it's insidious. Yeah, it's it's a it's terrible. But when you're standing on the edge, the heat coming off is unbearable. And I have one of those aluminum heat suits that uh, you wear if you work in a smelting plant or some type of foundry or something. And uh, I still had burns on my arm where there was a gap between my sleeve and my metallic glove. And just that little bit of exposed uh, skin got uh, burned within seconds. So that tells you the idea how hot it is. I know there are people out there who want me to ask this question, so I'm going to try to speak up for them. Why? Why do this? (laughs) (laughs) That is an absolutely fair question. And the way I like to describe why I do these things is because I have a curiosity and a passion for nature, and specifically nature's extremes. I've got the the skills, I've got the knowledge, I've got the research, I've got the the connections to be able to go and visit these places. I'm very fortunate. And so I absorb all of this risk so that I can showcase these places to people that will never get to go to these spots or never want to go, but they want to see them. They love watching volcanoes erupt. They love watching tornadoes touching down. They love watching hurricanes making landfall, but they don't want to be there because it's too difficult, it's too dangerous. I'm more curious than I am afraid. Now, don't get me wrong. I get afraid in these situations. Absolutely. And and it's the fear that helps to keep me alive. But my curiosity is greater than my fear. And my desire to share these places and showcase these spots um, is, is tremendous. And my hope is that it inspires other people to get excited about nature and also to maybe inspire them to do things that frighten them. Now, I'm not saying go climb a volcano, but there's lots of things that people do that frighten me, like talking to insurance companies, for example. <laughs> um, I would think insurance companies would be particularly difficult for you to talk to. I've, I've had lots of interesting encounters with insurance companies. Yes, some, <laughs> some not so great. Yeah. I actually sometimes get invited to speak at insurance conferences to talk about risk management because that my life is all about risk management. And you're always continuously assessing the risk in these in these situations. And it can come from a million different places. And the stakes are very high. So you've got to become very good at knowing your limitations, your equipment's limitations, the the dynamicness of the situation that you're in that can change with the behavior of a volcano or with the weather literally in the ma- in a matter of seconds things can change dramatically so being able to, able to take all that sensory input interpret it and then assess the risk from minute to minute that's basically what I do for a living mm. anyone who does anything outdoors or in the adventure world if you're if you're a surfer or if you're a climber or anything like that if you're a paraglider you're doing the same thing you're assessing your situation every every second to determine whether you're going to be able to continue doing this or do you have to back off do you have to change your strategy and that applies to to anything right you can take those same principles and apply them to anything sure sure well you have been in a lot of different types of environments um that are extreme obviously it's not just the volcanoes i mean you've been a part of a storm chasing organization looking for you know, for the tornadoes, you uh, you've been in deep caverns that are superheated with giant crystals. You have, you know, I I can't imagine the number of different environments. Um, do these places just call to you? Is it just oh, what yeah. you want to do? Absolutely, they, they they absolutely call to me. I 
whenever I'm at home, I spend a lot of time on the internet just researching the most bizarre natural phenomenon, the craziest places on earth, and they just they call to me and like for example, there's this place in in Siberia that I went to a couple of years ago called Oymyakon. And it's the coldest inhabited, permanently inhabited place in the world. So the coldest town on earth. And it's in the middle of Siberia. And to get to it, you have to drive for several days along what's called the Road of Bones. And it was built by the old Stalin era gulag prisoners. If you were a political prisoner and you died while building this road, they just buried your body in the road. So there are mm. thousands of bodies b literally buried in this dirt road. And so it's difficult to get to. Uh, we went in the middle of winter, of course, and it was minus 40, and that was a bit of a heat wave. We were actually expecting it to be colder. But just to be able to go to this place and meet the people who live there and showcase this spot, and I spent a night sleeping in a tent with a reindeer herder, stuff like that. So like, not many people get the opportunity to, to do these places. Most people don't even know that these places exist. So it's my mission to showcase them. And just as an interesting little side note, while I was there, um, we were doing a bit of... Uh, story a bit of a story about uh, climate change and how the permafrost in siberia is melting quickly and it's releasing more methane gas which then creates more greenhouse effect and one of the byproducts of the permafrost melting is they're discovering all of these woolly mammoths that have been frozen in the permafrost for 10,000 years and so now there's a there's this cottage industry of these guys going out and searching for these woolly mammoths for the ivory, because it's sort of an ethical ivory trade now. Wow. And we were in this spot deep underground in this um, this tunnel that had been carved out, and there was this metal door. Behind the metal door, they had the fully intact frozen head of a 10,000-year-old woolly mammoth. The tusks, the hair, the flesh, the whole head was intact and frozen and has been there for thousands of years. And it was amazing. And when no one was looking, I broke a little piece off and I had to try it because I wanted to <laughs> I wanted to taste it. <laughs> no. And if you've ever tried any meat that's been freezer burned, then you have a bit of an idea what this tasted like. Ugh. But just multiply that by a thousand. So how did your digestive system do with that? At first, it was fine. But then... After uh, a couple of days, after about two days, I started to get this terrible fever and the chills. Meanwhile, it's minus 40 outside. And uh, I was worried that I might have awoken some 10,000-year-old virus, and I might be responsible for the actual uh, you know, mass uh, pandemic of some kind of coronavirus <laughs> from this mammoth. So I was quite worried about that. And of course, when you're sick, it's awful and you've got stomach issues and fever. And in this part of Siberia, there are these outhouses. It's just a, a squat hole in the floor of the outhouse. And because anything that falls through that hole freezes almost immediately, you end up with a steep-sided cone of human mm. excrement and the tip of the cone protrudes above the hole oh no imagine traveling on a siberian highway in the middle of winter it's minus 40 you've got a fever thinking that you might be responsible for wiping out the entire human species and you go to uh, deal with your explosive diarrhea and this is what you're faced with so yeah, um, I do it so you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that one. <laughs> Not my finest moment. 
I know that around melting glaciers, there are protozoa that come from that same period of time, you know, to maybe 10,000 years ago that end up in the streams and things, and it can make you sick. I wonder if that's what you encountered. Uh, yeah, I spoke to a doctor afterwards uh, when I got home, and he was absolutely convinced that uh, it was this mammoth that made me sick. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, don't eat 10,000-year-old meat. That's all I can really... That's the best advice I can give your listeners. Well, you may be one of the few people on the planet who could ever attest to such a thing. Maybe the only living person who could ever attest to such a thing. <laughs> Perhaps. I'm sure there aren't <laughs> many of us. Wow. As I'm sure you know from listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, some of the safest and best snow conditions for backcountry skiing of the whole year happen in the springtime. And Bentgate has the gear you need. Come check out the latest in Alpine Touring, Telemark, NTN, and Splitboarding gear. They have brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Solomon, Vole, Neversummer, Jones, and BCA. And you do need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear. They have beacons, airbags, shovels, and probes. And they're ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. They also rent out gear, so you can get your skis and your boots there, as well as your avalanche safety equipment. What's more, they also have free demo ski days at local resorts, so you can try out the latest gear. Now, how much fun does that sound? So swing by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or go to bentgate.com to find your new gear, as well as to get updates on all of their events. Well, what about ice climbing on the icebergs? Why were you ice climbing icebergs? Yeah, um, I've I've done a bunch of ice climbing in in Canada and Antarctica, and uh, I've even climbed on an iceberg before in uh, Iceland. But um, we were filming an episode of my old TV show, Angry Planet, and we were trying to sort of show the path that icebergs take when they break off from the Greenland glaciers, and then they take about two years to travel down the coast of Canada, down to Newfoundland, and then out into the North Atlantic. And that's the exact path that the iceberg that sunk the Titanic took. So we were out there, and I wanted to place a uh, satellite tracking beacon on one of these uh, icebergs. And yeah, you could take a boat out there and pull up a side one, and, and I suppose you could attach it to the side of the iceberg. But where's the fun in that? So I suited up in a in a paddling dry suit, had my crampons on and my ice climbing equipment, and we took an inflatable zodiac out uh, in the off the coast of Newfoundland in Conception Bay is the place, and there were a couple of really beautiful icebergs out in the bay, and so I went out. Oh, and by the way, when you're ice climbing on an inflatable, like going from an inflatable boat onto an iceberg, be very careful not to accidentally stab the inflatable boat with your <laughs> pointy crampons that are attached to your boots. I can I can tell you from firsthand experience, the boat captain does not appreciate that. So this happened? Uh, I, got in, I got in, well, luckily these boats are built with multiple chambers, so it doesn't, it won't sink the boat, but uh, he had to repair it when we got back. But uh, yeah, I got in, I got in a fair amount of trouble from this guy <laughs> <laughs> accidentally stabbing his boat. But uh, the plan was to climb up on this iceberg, use an ice screw to put in this um, satellite tracking unit, and then we could go back and track it from the internet and see how how many days it takes to travel so far, things like that. The problem with these icebergs is that they're huge. They're the size of a small apartment building. And uh, they have a tendency to roll over, to smash apart, to break. 
uh, things like that. And literally, we're pulling up to this thing, and pieces of it are breaking off. Wow. And whenever pieces break off, it destabilizes the iceberg, and they, they tend to want to roll over, things like that. So when you climb onto it, you got to work very quickly. It's extremely difficult because the ice is dense because it's it's this compressed snow that as as you know it's been sitting there in greenland for sometimes thousands of years being compressed compressed and so all the ice bubbles are have been squeezed out of it so it's dense ice very difficult to climb on it's it's much different than climbing on a frozen waterfall which 99% of ice climbers do and so i was able to get up to the very very close to the summit of this iceberg put in an ice screw mount the thing and then luckily i was able to get off and um, we were able to track it for about three or four days afterwards, and then it just disappeared. So it either rolled over or broke apart, or we don't we don't know exactly what happened to it. But you don't want to be on top of the thing when it rolls or anywhere no. near it. It likely the the iceberg rolled and the tracking device was just submerged. Exactly, that's what we suspect happened. Yeah. So these things are very uh, dynamic; they're constantly changing, and. Uh, they they're they they're melting now. This is actually the time of year if uh, if people want to go iceberg spotting. They go out to Newfoundland this time from between now till early July, and you get lots of these gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous uh, you know icebergs that come down. And there are companies that harvest the ice from these icebergs to make um, iceberg vodka and things like that because the water is really pure. It predates the industrial revolution, so you don't get all these pollutants from coal burning and things like that. So it's uh, quite spectacular. Mm, wow, fascinating stuff. So in all of your travels, have you come to any uh, fresh conclusions about climate change? Um, well, the scientists are right. <laughs> and the, the things that I've seen perfectly align with what, what uh, the climate scientists are saying. Uh, we were in Tuvalu, this tiny little island nation in the South Pacific. And they are so concerned about sea level rise that uh, the government is actively working on a plan to evacuate the entire nation because they may have it might be completely uninhabitable within the next 50 years or so. Um, we were in Bangladesh, where half a million people every year are moving from the coastal regions to the main city of Dhaka, which already has about 11 million people, because their farmland is literally being eroded into the sea. We had people pointing out to the ocean saying, that's where my farm used to be. So it's not like they just lose their farmhouse. They lose all of their land. They can't even, there's nothing to farm because their land literally no longer exists. So we're already seeing refugees that are um, being displaced in a large part due to uh, climate change. And we're only expecting it to get worse. The good news is, is that I have, I have hope. Uh, the generation that's growing up now is extremely aware and far more uh, environmentally conscious. So that gives me a lot of uh, hope for the future. Well, you are chairman of the Explorers Club. Yes, the Canadian chapter. 
I do not know what that is. Yeah, so it's kind of what in. it sounds like. Uh, it is a group of about 3,000 or so, maybe 3,500 of the world's top explorers, researchers, astronauts, mountain climbers, divers, any anything that you might consider an explorer, um, including people like Diane Fossey, James Cameron, Buzz Aldrin, all of these folks are all uh, members or fellows of the of the of the club. And so it's based in New York City. So if you ever uh, find yourself in New York City, look up the Explorers Club headquarters. It is a beautiful building. It's like this museum. It's filled with artifacts like the Explorers Club flag that was taken to the moon by uh, by the Apollo 11 astronauts. There's uh, Perry's sled that he took to the pole. There's Thor Heyerdahl's globe that he used when planning the Contiki expedition, all these amazing artifacts. And so there are chapters around the world and I'm the, the chair of the Canadian chapter here. And uh, so basically what we do is we have resources. There are, um, there are uh, funds available for some of our expeditions. Um, there are libraries and archives that we can go in and re research for doing further expeditions. We can learn what has been done in the past. Um, we have a big dinner every year, which is really amazing. They serve all kinds of bizarre, exotic food. Like I was eating tarantulas and giant cockroaches. <laughs> oh, uh, no. Oh, yeah. Yeah. With a it's, side of woolly uh, mammoth, right? With a side of woolly mammoth? No, not this particular dinner. And it's this black pie <laughs> affair. It's, it's, it's this wonderful dinner. And I and I was invited to be the master of ceremonies this year. So I was literally on stage with um, Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world. The, of course, he's the founder of Amazon. But he also is um, heavily involved in space exploration with his company Blue Origin. And he also was heavily involved in the recovery, the discovery and recovery of the Apollo-era rockets that landed in the Atlantic. So he's got a deep background in exploration so it was an honor to be able to share the stage with him and uh, jim lovell who was the commander of the apollo 13 he's the man who said houston we have a problem like mm. he's the guy so just being able to rub shoulders with these people and and learn from them is a, just a fantastic thing oh that does sound really really cool where can people get more information about that organization uh, explorers.org you can check it out yeah it's an it's it's technically it's a it's a not for profit, and we uh, basically foster uh, exploration, discovery, and scientific uh, findings. It's 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 really cool, neat stuff. And if people want to see some pictures or videos from all of these amazing trips that you've done, is there a place that you would recommend they go see that? Uh, it's a one stop shop. Just head over to my website, which is furiousearth.com, and I've got links for all my. YouTube channel, social media, photo galleries, all of it's there. So that is FuriousEarth.com. Exactly. Well, George, we're running out of time, but I'll bet you have one more story, something maybe a little inspirational or surprising that you would like to close us out with. <laughs> oh, geez, I have so, so many. Um, one thing that I like to sort of, especially when I'm talking to kids, I like to stress to them how we are so distanced from nature. We go, we spend most of our life living in a climate-controlled house, going to a climate-controlled car. We go to our climate-controlled school or, or, or job, and we spend very little time appreciating nature. And that sense of awe 
of just your jaw dropping awe at witnessing something in the natural world is uh, is something that very few people get to experience all that often. And one of the most recent times when that happened to me was during the solar eclipse that happened this past summer, back in August. I was down in Tennessee, and I was helping to do the live stream for the weather network of, of the eclipse, and we were right in the path of totality. I'd never seen one before, but I'd seen everything. I have you know, erupting volcanoes and mile-wide tornadoes and the middle of Hurricane Katrina and climbing on glaciers and icebergs and stuff. So I, I didn't really think, I, I didn't put too much weight in how spectacular this thing was going to be. I was blown away. It was one of the most magical experiences of my life, standing in the path of totality as the sky goes dark and the streetlights come on, and the crickets start chirping and it gets colder. And just the, the you can see the corona with your naked eye because when you're in the full totality, you can take your, your protective glasses off. And it just blew my mind. And this is from a guy who's seen pretty much everything. So what I highly recommend is in a few years, there's going to be another solar total solar eclipse in the United States. I think it's 2024, if I'm not mistaken. Someone could easily correct me on that. Um, but if you, can, if, if you can possibly find your way into the path of this thing, it will change your life. It, you will pick your jaw up off the ground if you've never seen one of these things before. I love it. I love that stuff. And nature is so cram-packed full of those sorts of experiences. And sometimes they're big, like a solar eclipse or a volcano. Sometimes they're small minutiae that if you take time to notice, will just blow your mind, you know? But, oh, yeah. Like a butterfly landing on your hand. Oh, yeah. Something as simple as that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But it's a matter of, like you said, getting out there so you can have those experiences. Because until you go out, you won't have them. So you just have to go. Exactly. You will not have those experiences if you're sitting in your house. Period. Well, George, thank you very much for sharing again all of your crazy adventures that you've had and the things that you've been up to lately. It's always an honor to have you on the show. Pleasure is all mine. And for all the listeners out there, wow, look up George Coronis, uh, FuriousEarth.com, and look at what he's been up to. It is mind-blowing, and you might be inspired to go try a few crazy things yourself. So until the next show, make sure you do get out there and have some fun. All right, that'll do it for our episode with George Karunas. He's always a great guest when he comes on, and he always has awesome information about his recent trips. Until the next time, be sure to visit us at patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast and become a patron. And until the next episode, make sure you do get out and have some fun. Thank you.